0: Have you ever been to a factory? Have any of you ever worked in a factory? We might have might have a few of those here. Um so so I grew up in Sugarland, Texas, which is named for the Imperial Sugar Company. And right in the middle of town, there's this big sugar factory. And uh, today, it's no longer in operation. I think it's being redeveloped into some kind of a city museum and retail center of some sort. But when I was a kid, they were still making sugar. And I got to go on a little tour there and, and look around. And I was very young. I don't remember much of anything other than that apparently the refining process for sugar smells really bad, uh, because that is all I remember. Um, but the end product is great, right? We love sugar. Um, but I got to do that as a kid. Uh, I got to go tour that factory and see how that happened. What I remember much more is later in life getting to go visit the, the Bluebell Ice Cream Factory. Alright? And, and, uh, if, in Texas, Bluebell Ice Cream is like, it is a piece, like a foundational piece of culture. Right? So, so I went there and I was just amazed. I loved it. I was like a kid in a candy shop. I was, well, a person in an ice cream factory, so very similar, and and I loved it, and and got to see all the different ways that that they make the different flavors and stuff like that. And the best part was the end of the tour; you got a free bowl of ice cream. You got to pick whatever flavor you wanted, right? It was amazing. Um, and then later on, I I came moved up here to Seattle, and a couple years after that, I I brought my family who came to town one one time to go to Theo's Chocolate Factory in Fremont. Right. And so we got to go there and see where they source all the different cocoa from and how it goes from crunchy beans into this smooth treat of, of chocolate. Right. So I'm, I'm beginning to see a, a pattern of the factory tours I've been on. Sugar ice cream, chocolate, so for good measure, a couple years ago, Katie and I did bring some friends to the Boeing factory, and we got to go there and see how the planes are made and that kind of thing. Unfortunately, we chose to go there on a Saturday. Not much was happening, but we still got to see it, and it was great, um, but but factories, right? I mean, have you, any of you been on one of these kinds of tours, right? It's so interesting to see the process behind creating and, and making something, kind of get that behind-the-scenes tour. And if there's anything that we know about factories, it's that they are all about efficiency, right? They're all about efficient production. Right? Bluebell can make over a hundred pints of ice cream per minute. That's crazy, right? Theo's chocolate factory can make over a thousand pounds of chocolate per hour. Right? This is efficiency at its best, right? Factories are known for this. And, and here's the thing. Whether or not you've been on a factory tour or worked there, we all know something about Efficient production, right? The the 16th century theologian John Calvin wrote that the human being is a perpetual factory of idols. That the human heart is an idol factory. And whether it's fashioning idols out of wood and stone or, more likely today, out of media and money we are very efficient at producing idols at creating things to worship and you see human beings were created to be worshipers this is who we are this is who we are called to be in the garden of creation all things were created in perfect harmony and we worshiped god as innocent children But then sin entered the picture, and humanity left the garden. But even when that happened, we never stopped being worshipers. We simply redirected our worship toward all the wrong things. And ever since then, God has continued. He's been calling us back to him, right? From from the call of Abraham to Moses and the burning bush, From the songs of Miriam by the Red Sea, to the fierce leadership of Deborah the Judge, from the consecration of King David, to all the proclamations of the prophets, God has been calling his people back to him, offering to remake us into those innocent children once more, to worship again in perfect harmony. But our hearts remain so efficient at producing those idols. They remain idol factories, so efficient, in fact, that we often don't only make idols out of stuff of the earth, but we can even make idols out of the stuff of God. And that is what we see in our passage today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. And as you're turning there or maybe flipping there on your phone or whatever that looks like, I'll, I'll remind you of where we've been. So last week we started this new dwelling passage from Jeremiah 29. And for the next month or so, we're going to be looking through parts of Jeremiah to see the context that our dwelling passage falls in, and, and to see what we can learn from the prophet Jeremiah, and as we read this book, there's this clear theme that emerges, and it's the theme of exile, of God's people in exile. And so this question that we are holding before us as we enter and, and, and journey through this book, is, how are we to live? as God's people in exile. And so last week we we looked at Jeremiah chapter 1 and we saw that he lived in a time of great transition, right? From the glory days of spiritual renewal to some really dark days of destruction and ultimately exile. And amidst all of this, God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet who's going to prepare the people for exile and also teach them how to live in it. And his call, as we read last week, is to pluck up and pull down, but also to build and to plant. And before God sends Jeremiah off with this mission, he calls him to himself. He calls Jeremiah to find his identity and belonging in God. And that's where we all have to start if we're going to be in exile. If we are headed into exile, then all the more we need to know that no matter our circumstances, we belong to God. But it's possible to act like and even think that our identity is in God. And still be quite far from him. And that's the word that Jeremiah shares in chapter seven. So let's read beginning in verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my own name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house Which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. So go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people, Israel. And now, because you have done all of these things, says the Lord, And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your ancestors, just what I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, just as I cast out all your kinsfolk, all the offspring of Ephraim. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and the ways that it speaks to us, the way that it challenges us, and also the way that it builds us up. God, I pray that as we consider these words that You would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know You And love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, this passage, Jeremiah chapter 7, is known as Jeremiah's temple sermon. And it's called this because Jeremiah preaches it at the gates of the temple. In verse 2, God tells Jeremiah to stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this word there. Right? But it is also called The temple sermon, because it's not only at the temple, it is about the temple. Right? Both the way that the people use the temple now, and also what will come of the temple in the days ahead. And ultimately, I think this is a sermon about worship. Right? All this talk of the temple is really talk about worship. Because the temple is the place where the people of God would go to worship God. It is this house of worship, the house of the Lord. So Jeremiah starts off his sermon in the second half of verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Now what we might expect to follow is... Maybe some directions about the right way to offer sacrifices or burnt offerings. Or maybe how to to properly sing the psalms together, right? You know, some helpful information about how to worship, right? You know, if if you're worshiping, what style should it be in? You know, should it be organ and piano, drums and guitars, no instruments at all? You know, should it be four-part harmony? Should it be Gregorian chant? Right? I mean, this would be really helpful to know, you know? Or maybe, you know, for him to say, well, what order should your service be in? What translation should you be reading from? So on and so forth, right? This is what we might expect. If he's preaching on worship. But we hear none of that. Instead, what follows really has very little to do with what goes on in the temple and the worship that happens there. In fact, one of the first things that Jeremiah does is renounce the worship happening at the temple. In verse 4, he says, do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Right? And he says this while standing at the gate of the temple of the Lord. Right? You see, what Jeremiah is doing here is redefining the temple. He's redefining worship. He's saying, you think that coming here to do this religious stuff is worship, but let me tell you about real worship. And Instead of right sacrifices or better singing, He calls the people to justice and to righteousness. This is real worship. And so the first thing that we see is this call to justice. We see this in verses 5 and 6. He says, amend your ways. Act justly with one another. Do not oppress the stranger, the orphan, the widow, Don't shed innocent blood. Right? So our worship has very much to do with justice, with living with one another, right? Acting justly with one another. Our worship has to do with how we respond to strangers, to orphans, to widows, to the most vulnerable people that we encounter. People with no resources. People with no support. And so how do we respond to the person with that cardboard sign that we see? You know, is it with suspicion and judgment? Well, you know, they're probably here because of their own bad habits and bad decisions and they're just trying to get a free handout. Or do we respond with love and with compassion? Jesus says to his followers, as you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. How we are with the most vulnerable people is how we are with Jesus. How we are with others is our worship. And Jeremiah is insisting in this truth. You know, elsewhere in in Scripture, in the Psalms, it says that the Lord inhabits the praises of His people. He inhabits, He lives and dwells in the worship of God's people. Well, here, Jeremiah says, if you act justly with one another, If you do not oppress one another, then I will dwell with you. This is your worship, to act justly among one another. So our worship has to do with this kind of social justice, but it also has to do with a kind of moral rightness as well right he he calls the people to righteousness as well he goes on in verse 9 will you steal murder commit adultery swear falsely go after other gods and with these Jeremiah is quoting straight from the 10 commandments and he shows that our worship is also reflected in our moral actions theft murder adultery Lying, And again, we receive this tough challenge from Jesus for his followers. Because after all, he says, you've heard not to murder, but I tell you, don't even be angry. He says, you know, you've heard, don't commit adultery, but what I tell you is, don't even lust. After each other. He says, you know, you've, you've heard not to swear falsely. But what I tell you is don't even swear at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, he says, you've, you've heard not to steal, but, but I actually tell you to, to give. Give generously. You see, moral rightness is not found just in outward actions, but in the depths of our hearts. Right? And this is our worship. So if you've, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've probably seen that, that some churches tend to emphasize one of these over another. Right? You know, some churches emphasize the social justice aspect of our worship. And others will emphasize the moral righteousness aspect of our worship. But God calls us to both. God calls us to both of these. Our worship is reflected in the moral state of our hearts and the social state of our relationships. And not only how we are with our friends, but how we are with strangers and even our enemies. So if we're going to be people of worship, people who are committed to both justice and righteousness, then we're going to become a people living in exile. Because, you know, it's true, we do live in a culture where social justice Is championed, right? It's popular. It it is looked upon well. But it's also a society that produces massive inequity. Where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It's a society in which it's very easy to ignore oppression going on around us. It's very easy for our lives to be comfortable, right? And and on the righteousness side of things, it's true that our society punishes murder and theft and, and things like that. It even speaks out against sexual abuse all the more over the last few years. But our culture still seems to often encourage the kind of hookup culture and makes infidelity all too easy to come by. So, so truly to be people of worship is to be kind of strange. To be a people committed to justice and righteousness is ultimately to be in exile. Because you're always going to be pushing up against something, either calling the world into justice or calling that world into righteousness. But then the people that Jeremiah was talking to didn't seem to be very committed to either of these, right? They worshiped in a whole other way. They they didn't worship through social justice. They didn't worship through moral righteousness. Instead, they worshiped through empty religious ritual. Right? They go to temple. But it's not a place where they commit their lives to God. It's a place where they end up expecting God to commit his life to them. Right? Their idol factories just go to work. And they manage to turn the very temple of God into an idol. And so we see them living their lives however they want to. But they go to the temple, and as Jeremiah says in verse 10, They proclaim, oh, we're safe. We're fine because we're at the temple, right? And God's here, and God's going to take care of us. He's going to protect us. But their lives are not changed one bit. They have transformed the temple into an idol. They have turned the very things of God into, into something to be worshiped rather than God himself. God even says to them, the temple in which you have put your trust. And so I wonder, what are some of the ways that we might do this? You know, maybe it's knowing the Bible really well. You know, oh man, as long as I have my book, chapter, and verse, I am set But Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you will find life. And yet it's they that testify about me. And you're not coming to me for life. And so maybe that's one of the ways that that we can transform even the Bible into some kind of an idol. Maybe it's just sort of the, the social status of being a church person. Right, And we go to church and we say just like them, oh, we're safe, we're fine. But God calls us to more. This is not true worship. Our worship goes beyond here. We cannot rest in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God is transforming us. And so as we look through this passage, you know, we see some of the things that Jeremiah is calling the people to and calling out. But what do we see about God throughout this passage? I think there's a few things we see here. First, we see God's desire. Right? In verse three, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and let me dwell with you. God's desire is to dwell with God's people. And this has always been true since the garden where God walked with us. And ever since then, God has continued to pursue and say, I want to dwell with you. This is God's desire. We also see that pursuit that God has. In verse 13, he says, I spoke to you persistently. Right? I have pursued you again and again. If you flip a little bit further down into the the chapter in verses 25 and 26, he gives some specific examples. He says, from the day that your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets to them, day after day. And yet they did not listen to me or pay attention, but they stiffened their necks. And they did worse than their ancestors did. And so God has a heart that desires to dwell with his people. And God has persistently pursued his people. But ultimately, his people haven't had it. They haven't listened. They haven't turned. And so... In the last couple verses of this passage, we see that God is not bound by the temple. God is not bound by his land. We see that God is free. You see, the people think that the temple is the place where they can keep God that God can be kept there, and because they have the temple, we're safe. But God is not bound. He is free. And so he goes on to say, uh, start in verse 13, Now because you have done all these things, I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. Verse 14, Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you, and your ancestors. Just what I did to Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is this city that was was north of Jerusalem in northern Israel. And it's, it's this place where the people originally set up the tent of God whenever they moved in to the land, right? And they set up camp there. They were there and this is the place from which they got all of their land and were sent off into the rest of the nation. But what has happened is that that land has been overturned. And ultimately, all of the northern part of Israel was invaded and already thrown into exile. And so here, Jeremiah is saying to the people in Judah, hey, you know what happened to them? Just because my name dwelt there didn't mean they were safe. And The same is true for you. This temple is not a talisman. It's not a token. You will be my people, or you won't. And we see that God, in fact, is free. And so he sends them this stark warning. So what do we do with this, right? He's calling the people into certain things. And we see this heart of God that desires to dwell, that consistently pursues, but is not bound. And I want to throw out this question that we're going to continue to ask. How are we then to live as a people in exile? You see, at first glance, Reading this is harsh and it feels like judgment because, in many ways, it is to this people. But when they're sent into exile, they can remember these words and suddenly there's good news in them. Because if our worship is not confined to the temple, whenever the temple is torn down and we're thrown out into exile, we can still worship. If God is not bound to the temple, then when the temple is torn down and we can't go there anymore, God is still with us. This is the good news. You see, there's also a call in this. Because in exile we are still a people who worship. In exile, we are still a people with whom God dwells. But we have to live as people with whom God dwells. As people of justice and righteousness. This is why when we opened, 1 Peter says, you are like living stones who have been drawn together and built up into a temple of God. You see, we don't need the temple in order to worship. We are the temple. Who are the people of God who worship God? This is the good news. And Jesus is the cornerstone of that temple. He is the one who knew exile more than any one of us, who went all the way to the cross and was killed. And we are the ones who follow him, and righteousness and justice. So as I draw this to a close, I want to ask a few questions. I wonder, what are the idols that our hearts become so good at manufacturing? What are those things that your heart has has turned into an idol? It may be Something of the earth, it may be something of God. Anything can become an idol. Another question. Where is God calling us into justice and into righteousness? What does that look like for you? What does that look like for this community? You know, next week we have a great opportunity to be a people who worship God in acts of justice by feeding men at the reach-out shelter. And I'm sure that there's still more help that could be used with that, right? Where is God calling us? Into justice and into righteousness. And finally, this question. How? is your life a temple of God? Where are the places in your life that you can see and sense the presence of God? Where are the places where worship can erupt and take root and be? Because we were once not a people but now we are God's people. We once had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We are the living and worshiping temple of God. May it be so. Amen.